Amen. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3. We've been looking at the, the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders who did not want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And we know that one of the reasons that they did not want to believe was because that he had offended them. This idea that they must be saved when, well, at least in the eyes of the people, they were the most religious people of the day. Why would they need to be saved? Saved from what? So they thought they were on top of everything, and Jesus comes along saying that everybody has to repent, that every single one of us is guilty, and we need his free grace offering that he won for us upon that cross. That offends some people. Just last night I was going to bed, listening within a five-minute span on the radio from two different vantage points. One, a retired colonel in the military who said that, you know, he saw soldiers, American soldiers, every time before they go out to fight in battle, pray together. Well, that prayer is not like a football team with the cameras on. That's a prayer where they are desperate for God. They know that the enemy wants to destroy them, and they all come together at that moment in time, and they pray, and they ask God to intervene. And then another perspective, just a few minutes later, listening to a man who 40 years ago had been to the moon. And he was asked what his perspective was like as an astronaut looking at the earth from the moon. He said, it's kind of like sitting on God's front porch. How can you look at the earth from the moon. He said, I wish everyone could see it and think that there isn't something larger than ourselves, greater than ourselves, by which we would be held accountable. Well, I don't know, but I've kind of broken it down into three sort of scenarios. Number one, maybe some people don't want to be saved, at least not God's way. You think about the audacity, just in your mind for a second, whatever you believe this morning, of thinking that you can go to the creator and say, I don't like your way of salvation, so I don't like it, and because I don't like it, I reject it, even if that means that you're gonna separate me from you for all of eternity, tough. Then I'll go there, I'll go to hell, and I'm happy to be there. I don't think people really understand what they're saying when they say that, but I've heard people say that before. Number two, I think some people think that they don't need to be saved because they don't believe. They just frankly don't believe. I was sent an article this week from some folks. There's a rise, you may not even know about it, but there's a rise in, quote, atheist megachurches today. Can you stand it? Atheist megachurches. One of the organizers of one of these churches said, quote, we're trying to provide some of the same universal needs provided by a house of worship. Isn't that interesting? that the atheist admits that there is this need that all people have that they've been wired and built for worship. The woman who wrote the article said this, when you read such atheist slogans as relax, hell does not exist, or enjoy life, there is no afterlife, or free thinkers and thank God I'm an atheist, ask yourself who they're trying to convince. And then she went on to say this, we know the target of their mockery, but why take up the cause of nothingness? 
They put so much effort into trying to eradicate the Christian faith from the public square that they're blind to their own yearning to believe. It's fascinating. And there is a clue to the meaning of life found in our yearning to worship and to believe and to be fulfilled in that. It's very, very sad that people would reject that. But the saddest category, I think, of unbeliever, the third category, is the person who says that they don't think they can be saved. Ever met someone before who thinks that somehow they've committed some kind of sin so atrocious that no matter how big God is, his grace couldn't cover that kind of a sin? I've talked to people like that. I've gone on walks with people to try and convince them that that's not the case. Now, interestingly enough, as we'll see in our text this morning, there is a type of person who cannot be saved. Now, before you pick up rocks to throw them at me, let me explain. It is not for the reason that they think they cannot be saved. It is not for the reason that probably most of us, when we first think about the idea of one not being able to be saved, would think that that's the reason. It is not because they've committed some kind of mortal sin, quote-unquote, or heinous crime. Think about it. If anybody would have been a group guilty of sin to the point where God's grace couldn't cover that sin, it would have been the Jewish religious leaders, right? Think about all the things that they did. I mean, I know from the world's perspective, they were holier than thou, but inwardly we know they were corrupt. They were total hypocrites. They would parade to the street so that they could be seen before men. They would strain people of their money while they got rich in the process in the name of religion. And then on top of that, what did they do? But they sort of rewrote God's law. They took God's holy scriptures and then they added specificity to those scriptures that God had never intended for them to add. And then on top of that, they used those specifics to, as an excuse to deny the Lord Jesus based on their foolish, man-made traditions. We saw that last time in Mark chapter 2 as the religious leaders began to question Jesus and the disciples for not fasting as often as they did. When God had only implemented one mandatory fast for the whole year on the Day of Atonement, but the religious leaders came along and said, no, you got to fast Monday and Thursday of every week, a hundred fasts per year in order to be holy, in order to be worthy. But God had never said that. And then they picked on Jesus and the disciples for going through the grain fields and picking the wheat, and rubbing off the chaff, and then eating. Because that would have constituted, according to their definition, harvesting or laboring on the Sabbath, even though it was not a violation of the Sabbath the way it's written in God's law. What they had essentially created was this total burdensome religion of rules and religiosity that God had never intended. And yet, even they were not beyond God's grace, were they? Because we know some of them got saved. Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Saul of Tarsus was probably a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul, later on he would be. Saul of Tarsus, probably one of those who at one point had a hardened heart and yet God broke through in his life. But we're going to see here in chapter 3 that the religious leaders are going to be treading on thin ice because they're going to stoop to a new low than ever before. 
And you think, well, how could they go lower than they went last week? Remember the beginning of chapter 3? When they set up this trap where as Jesus came into the synagogue, they would have this man who had this withered hand. And it was the Sabbath, of course. And they wanted to see if Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath, which would have been a violation of their protocol, but not a violation of God's law, let alone the fact that he is God and he is Lord of the Sabbath, as he said, and he can heal if he wants to heal. But that's what they did. And Jesus had the man step forward. He wanted them all to see that he was going to do what they were trying to trap him into doing. Never mind the fact that they had set up this plan. Never mind the fact that after he had healed the man, they had plotted to murder Jesus on the Sabbath. But healing someone on the Sabbath, that's a huge, egregious uh, breaking of God's law. But the fact that uh, they were plotting his murder afterwards, they saw no problem with that in their own hearts. And this is the concern, the danger of the hardness, or you might say the callousness of their hearts over time developing and becoming stronger and stronger in terms of their resistance towards God. They start plotting his murder, we saw in verse 6. Well, Jesus is not afraid of the religious leaders, but he knows that everything has to work according to the timing, God's timing, right? God, the Father, is showing him along the way what he needs to do. So picking up in verse 7, it says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan, those from Tyre and Sidon, great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So on the surface, we would think that for a great multitude to come to Jesus would always be a good thing, unless they're coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Notice it says they came when they heard how many things he was doing. We have to be a little bit careful about that for those of us that are Christians. Sharing our testimony can be a little bit tricky sometimes, and you got to even filter what I'm saying right now, because God needs to show you how you share your testimony. But if all we talk about when we're sharing our testimony are the things that God has done for us instead of who he is, then we might be attracting folks to Jesus, but they may not hang around very long if God doesn't do those same very things for them in their lives. God is not, you know, up there just wanting to give you stuff. He wants you reconciled unto the Father. He wants to forgive you of sins. He wants to give you eternal life. But sometimes following God doesn't mean that you're going to be healed of some kind of a disease, as many of these people were. And as we know then, many of them also, when Jesus stopped doing those things, they didn't stick around much longer either. Nevertheless, they've arrived. This is a huge crowd from the cities that are described here in these verses. It's about a hundred mile radius, and things are getting a bit, a bit hectic at this point. It's like a, a black a Friday shopping mob that's coming to Jesus. It says, verse 9, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. I mean, could you imagine that you're so concerned about the crowds coming? You know, you're not worried about getting parking or seating for people or children's ministry or anything. You just need a getaway car so that you can get out in case people crush. They have a boat just off the shore there in case he had to back up to somewhere where the people could not 
go. I mean, Alabama, if you saw yesterday, they had to get off the field in a hurry, didn't they? Because they were going to be crushed by the Auburn fans who were taking the field. Some of you who don't like Alabama very much enjoyed that, didn't you? Yeah, I bet you did. Should the Ram 49ers somehow beat the Rams today? I don't know how that would possibly happen, but they would probably do the same thing, storm the field, tear down the goalposts, you know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a Rams fan, you know. Let's go ahead and say whatever you want to say. This is the frenzied sort of mom that Jesus is facing. Here's why. Verse 10, for he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, speaking of the demons, whenever they saw him, fell before him and cried out, saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them, again, speaking of the demons, that they should not make him known. In other words, for the demons to go around saying that Jesus was the son of God, would be like the church of Satan passing out flyers for our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Not exactly the kind of publicity that we want. Uh, the demons weren't exactly what God had in mind for his PR campaign either. He's at a very critical point in his ministry. We know he had offended the religious leaders. They had plotted to kill him. And now he's attracting huge crowds. And some of these folks, of course, like we said, maybe coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons, and they too might be offended and turn on him at some point if he doesn't keep doing the things for them that he had been doing all along, which is not principally why he came. He did not principally come to heal people of their sicknesses or feed the multitudes or do miracles. It's not principally why he came. And so they might turn on him also, yeah, especially if they found out what his real mission was, which was to seek and save that which was lost, which means that they were lost, which means that they also, like the religious leaders, might be offended as well. Turn on him. Remember in the book of John, as we were studying, Jesus kept saying, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And so Jesus didn't want to unnecessarily throw himself into harm's way. What does he do? Well, we know from Luke 6 that before he calls the 12 that he spends the entire night with the Lord in prayer. So he pulls away from the crowds for a day, and then in order to delegate a little bit, he now calls his 12, knowing that at some point in time, he was going to have to pass the torch. And so it says, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then verse 14, he appointed 12, that first of all, it says, they might be with him. And secondly, that he might send them out to preach. And then and only then, verse 15, to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And I think oftentimes one of the problems for Christians is that we want to jump to the power or we want to speak for God, we want to preach, maybe not necessarily in an environment like this, but we want to jump to steps two and three, and we miss out on what God wants to do first in our lives. Notice the 12 here. We have to be the same. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we must first be willing to be with him, just like they were with him, and then specifically sent out by him. And then he will be faithful to equip us in the area in which we're called. Don't forget, these disciples, 
these 12, they are just as unlikely candidates to be used by God to turn the whole world upside down as anyone in this room. They really are. And just so you know, we're going to pull out a few highlights here as he lists the 12, beginning in verse 16, with Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now in all of these lists, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's also one in Acts, Peter is always the first disciple that is mentioned. He's probably the leader of the group, even though we know that Peter made many mistakes. Remember at the very end, he was going to head over to Jerusalem, and Jesus was, and Peter's like, no, you can't go there. You know, like Peter was going to be Jesus' personal bodyguard. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get heed behind me, Satan. And then in the garden, the night of his arrest, when Jesus was allowing himself to be arrested, Peter pulled out his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus wasn't happy about that either. Or even the night before, remember when Jesus said, surely before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and more on that later on. But it's encouraging to me, I think, when you look at someone like Peter and all the flaws that Peter had, how ordinary he was, and yet God used him. How about these two? Verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, probably because of their fiery disposition. There's that one scene in Luke 9 where they're going into a Samaritan village and they just wanted nothing to do with Jesus. It said they did not receive him there. And James and John, the sons of thunder, go to Jesus and say, hey, should we command fire be called down from heaven and consume these guys? That's what they said. Should we nuke them all, Lord? Basically what he said. And of course, Jesus wasn't uh, into that at all. But later on, John would become known as the disciple of love. And he would be the one over and over again encouraging uh, the church to love one another. The trend with all of these 12 is that they're just ordinary, flawed sinners. No different than you and I. They just spent time with Jesus. No Bible college, no seminary. And the effect that God had through their lives has made its way down throughout the centuries into this very room this morning. Well, we know less about the rest of these guys. We know a few things. Verse 18, Andrew, who we know brought his brother, brother Peter to Jesus. That's good right there. But Andrew, we see in other places, bringing people to Jesus. And if all you ever do in your life is bring people to Jesus, then look at that. You're right there on par with Andrew no ministry more important than bringing people to Jesus. And then there's Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, who we'll talk about in a second, Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, which is not a reference to his nationality. That's a Hebrew word, which means zealous. In other places, he's referred to as Simon the Zealot. And then verse 19, Judas Iscariot, also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And trust me, if Jesus had not gone in with them into that house, a fight would have broken out. Be 
because these men were very different, radically different. This is a variety here. Jesus was an equal opportunity employer, you might say. For example, you take Matthew. Matthew was a Roman collaborating tax collector, okay? But Simon the Zealot was a part of the Zealots, which was a political group that was sworn to attempt to assassinate the enemies of Judaism, which would be people like tax collectors, Matthew, exactly. So that would mean for an interesting introduction of Simon the Zealot, meet Matthew the tax collector. You're gonna be working alongside each other very closely and become good friends now throughout the years. Can you imagine that would have been pretty interesting as well. There's such a mystery in these selections. You think about Judas and all that implies in the calling of Judas. Did Jesus not know that Judas was gonna betray him? No, he knew. He said, one of you among me at one point is a devil. He knew. Did he need Judas to betray him? No. Could have tipped his hand to the religious leaders as to where he was the night that they were at the Garden of Gethsemane in a different way. And yet Judas is still chosen. Did Jesus make a mistake in choosing Judas? No. But we may never know exactly why he chose Judas, but I do have one idea. One idea as to why God chose Judas, maybe just to show us that someone could walk with Jesus, could see and hear everything he ever did or said and still have a hardened heart to put to rest once and for all, for all of us, the question that we've all probably asked at one time or another, which is, does everybody get a fair shake? In other words, well, what if I would have walked with Jesus and seen his miracles, then I would have believed? You don't know that because Judas didn't. He saw what Jesus did and he hardened his heart against Jesus. How about Thomas there, speaking of skeptics? And aren't you glad that Thomas was a skeptic? I certainly am glad. Faith doesn't mean that you believe in everything that people say. The person who believes in everything that people say is just as far away from God as the person who believes in nothing that people say. <laughs> That's the truth. Remember, just because religious people say things, remember that group, the, the Jesus Seminar? The supposed religious scholarly group, right? They once said this. They said the disciples made up the idea of the resurrection because they could not handle the disappointment of the crucifixion. And that's total nonsense. How do we know? Because Thomas never would have gone for that. Because Thomas was an empirical scientist. He wanted to see for his own eyes. These men, all 10 out of the 11, not including Judas, not including John, but the other 10 all died martyrs' deaths. They would have never died for a known lie. Thomas would have never died for a known lie. In fact, when they arrested Jesus, remember they all scattered and they ran for their lives? They were afraid. They thought they had been defeated. What changed their hearts? The proof of the resurrection. They had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so God puts a skeptic into the group. He didn't believe it until he saw it for his own two eyes. And Jesus would say, greater are those who have not seen and believed. But Thomas serves a purpose as well in that whole thing. The whole thing becomes more credible when you understand the doubts and the denials 
and even some of the fears that the disciples had. Why did he choose them? Well, there's some good reasons why he did. Maybe most importantly, he chose them because he knew that they would stick, that they would hang around. Because remember, great multitudes would come, but a lot of them would turn their back on Jesus. But these guys stuck by his side. And that's a lot better than we can say for some. Even some of the people that Jesus grew up with, some of his friends, even some of his family members, as we'll see here in the next couple of verses. It says, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. The idea here is the crowd so pressed in on Jesus and the disciples that they weren't even able to sit down and enjoy a meal. But verse 21, when his own people heard about this, and own people probably refers to friends or family members, people that he grew up with, hometown buddies, so to speak. It says, when they heard his own people about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, look what it says, he is out of his mind. They thought Jesus had gone crazy. He's got a Messiah complex. Go talk to that guy. Jesus, in their mind, had become a candidate for a straitjacket in a padded cell. And they were concerned. They wanted to lay hold of him, meaning they wanted to bring him home. And I believe in their own hearts, they thought they were looking out for Jesus' own best interest. Maybe they had heard about the religious leader's plot to kill Jesus and the fact that Jesus wasn't willing to back down. Maybe they had heard that you know, the big crowds were coming and Jesus was in danger of being crushed, as it said in our text. Maybe they had heard about Jesus' supposed miracles, even though most of the hometown crowd probably didn't see those things growing up. We don't have any reason to believe that Jesus did miracles before the age of 30. And so when they hear these things, they're like, oh, he's lost his mind. Remember, his very own half-brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. In fact, they tried to egg him on at one point and say, hey, why don't you go take your act to the big city, man? Go to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world. They tried to challenge him to see how he would do in the big city. So all of these folks, the hometown crowd, the friends, the family members, as we'll see next week, at this point, they're not so sure. They're trying to pull Jesus away from what he was doing. Listen, if you don't already know, and most of you do, you live for Jesus, you become a true follower of Jesus, and your own people will think that you're out of your mind. Oh, wait a minute. So it's bad enough that you're going to church for an hour and a half every single week, but now you're reading your Bible, and now you're listening to Christian music in the car, you're volunteering to help at the church. You come and they give you a broom and you sweep in the parking lot. Are you crazy? In the children's ministry, Wednesday night, home fellowship groups, inviting people to church, sharing your faith, you've lost your mind. They'll say the same things. It was the prophet Isaiah who long before said, woe to them who call evil good and good evil. And one of the problems, of course, we know is we're living in a tough generation. A generation that would have us believe that for us to share the love of Christ is not the right thing for us to do. We cannot let them convince us that that's the case. 
wish somehow, some way, we could bring back all of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers. They would look at this world and this society and how they've tried to brainwash Christians and think that this whole world has gone mad. The Bible said it's only the fool who would say in his heart there is no God. And the word for fool in the Hebrew language there in the Psalms means literally insane. So who are the real crazy people? The ones who believe and trust in Jesus Christ as God or the ones who do not? It's one thing to reject Jesus, though. It's another thing to think that he was crazy. In fact, remember when C.S. Lewis said Jesus is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? Well, this chapter encompasses all three of those perfectly, right? Because the theory from his family and friends was he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. He thinks he's the Messiah of God. The theory from the religious leaders, though, as they stoop, as I said, to an all-new low here. This is one of those. No, they did not just say that. They did not. No, you did not just go there. Yes, they did. They think he's a liar. And worse than that, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. Now, I'm glad that that name didn't stick for the devil. Because that's like cartoon-like, I think, as far as I'm concerned. It's too silly. You have little kids with Beelzebub stickers or something like that. It is a much more harsh reality behind that name, right? It says, and, end of verse 22, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. That's what they're saying. By the ruler of demons. Now, we know from Matthew chapter 12, where this healing is recorded, that the multitudes then responded and said, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? That's a messianic reference there. So what do they do? The scribes come up, this official delegation from Jerusalem to the Galilee. It's like a 90-mile trip. These heavy hitters are there to observe and assess the ministry of Jesus Christ. Their opinion would have carried a lot of weight in the eyes of the people. And in their expert analysis, they say that Jesus is casting out demons. This is, again, the beginning of the chapter, but we saw it in another chapter, too. He is able to cast out demons by the power of the ruler of the demons, the devil himself. That's what they're saying. He's a liar. And worse than that, because technically, they're not just saying he gets his power from the devil. They're saying that he is actually possessed by the devil. Look how it's worded. It says he has Beelzebub, meaning there's no other way to explain this exceptional power that Jesus had except he be possessed by Satan himself. Now, stop for a second and recognize once again that it's not like anyone is ever questioning that Jesus is actually doing these things. Nobody is questioning whether or not he is actually doing these miracles. They just don't know how, so it must be the devil. So verse 23, it says, So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In other words, is there a civil war going on in the demonic realm? If there is, that kingdom's not going to stand. Verse 25, And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. You want to know if I'm working in cohesion with the devil, he would say? That is illogical. The devil may be many things, 
is not stupid, and he's not going to undermine his own cause. Beyond that, he goes on to say, verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house, speaking of those who are under control of the devil, and that's the strong man. Nobody can overtake the strong man, and it says, plunder his goods, speaking of what belongs to the strong man, which would be the body of someone that he possesses. No one's able to plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. In other words, what he's saying is the strong man is Satan, and only a stronger man could or would be able to bind Satan. And the religious leaders give absolutely no response to this argument. I mean, what else could they possibly say? They have gone to as far of an extreme as you can possibly go as far as an explanation for how Jesus could have such exceptional power. You think about a heart that is so determined not to believe that they would attribute a legitimate exorcism to the devil. That's how cold-hearted they were to Jesus Christ. And when they get to that place, they're in grave, grave danger spiritually, and that's why Jesus issues the following warning. Verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. In other words, in other words even their out of their mind blasphemies that they uttered against Jesus, as insane as they were to think that he was possessed by the devil in order to do those things, he said, even their sins could be forgiven. But, verse 29, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now let's park for a second here as we wrap up. There's a clear warning on the part of Jesus that these scribes were on the verge of committing what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they had said he has an unclean spirit, that he was possessed by the devil. Not that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, per se, is to accuse Jesus of being possessed by the devil, but that a heart, in order to say that, would have to grow so hard that they would have to be really, really very far from God, treading on Jesus said there that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would eventually result in eternal condemnation. It is indeed the one unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Now, to understand something like this, always, anytime we get to something tricky, we have to understand anything in light of the context of all of Scripture in order to understand and properly interpret it. Just look back at verse 28, and you'll see that he said all sins will be forgiven. In fact, he uses the word whatever, whatever blasphemies, whatever atrocities that are done. He said all will be forgiven except one thing, just one thing is not forgivable, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that begs the question, right? What then is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is it murder? Is that it? No. Moses 
was guilty of murder. Moses is in heaven, right? No one here thinks Moses is not in heaven, do they? Okay. Is it murder? It's not murder. Right? How about drunkenness? No, Noah got drunk. No one thinks that Noah's not in heaven. So it's not drunkenness. Is it sexual immorality? No, King David committed adultery. Not only did he do that, but he got the woman pregnant, Uriah's wife, and then he had Uriah murdered to cover it up. No one thinks that David is not in heaven. How about Solomon? He had a thousand wives and concubines. You think any of us would see a man with a thousand wives and concubines today and say, that's an on-fire Christian believer? Probably not. But he did not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not cursing the Holy Spirit. It is not taking the Lord's name in vain. It is not even saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. Otherwise, Jesus would not have warned these religious leaders that they were on the verge of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's the use in warning someone that has already committed an unpardonable sin? Now, we could spend all day on this subject, but I wanted to cover it thoroughly. So hopefully it will suffice if I summarize. If you remember back in John 15, Jesus said that the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to testify of Jesus, to testify of who he is, namely that he is the Christ sent by God to die for our sins, that we would have forgiveness. And implied in that is that everyone needs forgiveness because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Okay, so simply put, simply put, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the testimony of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gives to each one. But this is very, very important, okay? Follow with me all the way on this, okay? Think about Peter. Peter was someone who walked with the Lord for three years, and then he was out one night after they had arrested Jesus, warming up by a fire. A little girl comes up to him and says, hey, you're one of his followers. He said, no. He swore and he cursed and he said that he never even knew him. And he locked eyes with Jesus at that moment. Was that the blasphemy of the Spirit? No. Not only did Jesus forgive Peter, he restored him into ministry and used him mightily. How about Saul of Tarsus? before he was the Apostle Paul? Was he not living a life of constant rejection to the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ? Yes, he was, right? He was hunting down Christians. He was consenting to their death, all those kinds of things. He had to resist that testimony of the Holy Spirit in order to do that. And yet nobody thinks that Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, was guilty of the one unpardonable sin. So whether we're talking about David or Peter or Paul or the thief on the cross, he had done nothing his whole life but evil. He does one thing on his deathbed. He says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. How do we know that none of those men committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a, deliverer, is a deliberate, ongoing, and ultimate rejection of Christ, technically unto death. In other words, you got to be dead to be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because while you're still alive, you can still receive the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus Christ. However, and this is why Jesus is warning these religious leaders, it is dangerous to hear about God's love and reject it over and over and over again because it only gets harder. It is dangerous 
to hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and to reject it over and over and over again. It is dangerous to go to an atheist megachurch over and over and over again in order to fulfill a void that God has placed in your heart only to be satisfied by him. That's why I said that these religious leaders, they haven't committed the sin yet, but they are on the verge of committing that sin. Listen, if you're here this morning, because this is the kind of verses, and this is why we park a little bit where we take our time with this, and you're worried about whether or not you might have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the fact that you're worried about it is an indication that you have not. Because the idea is, is that the people that are not worried about it are the ones that Jesus was warning here very clearly. But they still had hope. They still could be saved if they would soften their hearts. Years ago, probably the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life, without any shadow of a doubt, was a YouTube video put together by atheists where they read a passage like this and they said the one unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and so they got countless number of people to record themselves on YouTube saying I blaspheme the Holy Spirit children young people I blaspheme the Holy Spirit I reject Christ I reject the testimony of Christ I blaspheme the Holy Spirit here's the problem none of them did it because they were still breathing in and out so important for us as Christians that if we run across someone who thinks that they've done something that God can't forgive, we tell them that's not true. Absolutely not true. But the fact that they would even dare say something like that is an indication of the fact that there is a hardness, there is a callousness developing. And so Jesus is warning anyone who would hear you are becoming cold toward God. You can only go down that road so far. Remember in the book of John, in John chapter 5, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you are unwilling to come to me that you would have eternal life. Then later in chapter 8, he said, but you are not able to listen. So first they were unwilling, later they weren't even able. Or go all the way back to the book of Exodus. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Pharaoh hardened his heart six times. And then finally in Exodus chapter 9, God came along and hardened the Pharaoh's heart for him. You can only go down that road so far. My exhortation, because I know most of you here in this room are Christians, don't walk out of here today and say, as I've said so many times before, oh, it's all right, I know he's going to come to Christ someday. I know she's going to get saved someday. No, the longer that they go in rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the harder it is to believe somewhere down the road. So you keep praying for them. You keep sharing. You keep talking to them about Jesus. Don't give up on them. Don't just assume. Don't just leave it be. Keep working in their hearts. God wants to save them. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come an understanding of his grace and his mercy and his love that he poured out on that cross. Father, we